You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Christopher Phillips is the author of Socrates Café, A Fresh Taste of Philosophy, Six Questions of Socrates, A Modern-Day Journey of Discovery Through World Philosophy, and C.C. Ann's Day of Why. His new book is Socrates in Love, Philosophy for a Die-Hard Romantic. Thank you for joining me, Mr. Phillips. Thank you. I'd like you to start off to explain to us uh, the Socrates Café, because this is a really fascinating concept that I hadn't bumped into until I bumped into your latest book. Well, a Socrates Cafe is a place where ideally you engage with a lot of diverse thinkers and where it's not enough to just say what you think, but why you think what you think, to offer your story behind your philosophical perspective, where you try to support your view with cogent, compelling reasoning of a sort. The idea is to tap into that childlike, but by no means childish questioning nature we have and explore our views, discover our views in ways that we wouldn't if we were left to our own devices, in ways that we wouldn't if we just engage with our friends, but to gather with strangers and form a community around the question itself and feel it's okay to have more questions at the end of the discourse than we had at the beginning, but that it's just supposed to serve as a launching pad for further and deeper inquiry. And Socrates Cafe itself is meant to Bring people together at a time when Americans not only are not civic-minded, but they're not even very civil towards one another. How can they become more civic if they're not civil? So this is my modest way of engaging people to, to then go on and, and get more involved in this world. It, these discussions that you've been conducting are really fascinating. It's a really great idea. Could you describe, how do you set up one of your sessions? You, come, you travel around the world, don't you? My modest ambition had been to start one group. I was in Montclair, New Jersey, a bedroom community of New York, and that was in 1996. We have over 500 groups now. It's taken on a life of its own. These are grassroots started uh, from people who are just uh, think that this is a great way to bring about a type of inquiry in their community that can become sort of a mainstay. The uh, What I do, when I started Socrates Cafe, I, it's very anti-guru. I don't pose the question. I don't tell people what we have to talk about, and I don't try to lead them to the promised land of my truth with a capital T. It's their discussion. So I ask them, what do they want to talk about? And then they pitch questions. And then we take the very non-scientific approach of voting on that question, and on that particular night leaves us feeling the least expert and the most perplexed. Because I find that those questions that are best plumbed and delved into are those in which we don't feel like we know it all and in which we feel like we need the considered perspectives of others to gain greater insight into the questioning du jour. So you travel from city to city and, and set up these, these sessions yeah. this is a, that make you feel deliberately uncomfortable probing right. for, for the, the places where your understanding is the weakest then. Right. So I thrust myself into places where I'm sure I will not know the people who are come. In fact, I thrust myself in places where those who participate 
quite often don't realize that that's what's going to happen, whether it's in the Hiroshima Peace Park or Washington Square Park in Greenwich Village in Manhattan. Um, I do that because, to me, it's not the... I don't want to know who's coming, and I don't want to know what we're going to talk about. It's thrilling, you know? I, I think that's one of the problems these days is you want to know what's in, at the end of the book before you even start reading it. You know, everybody wants to know what's coming. And so they're no longer inured to the surprise of the unfamiliar in the novel. And I think we miss out on a lot. I mean, democracy is supposed to be about experimentalism. It's supposed to be about opening up our imaginative intellectual horizons, our existential horizons. So this, to me, is what Socrates Cafe can help do. So I've been doing it for 12 years. I've done thousands of them, and I still get a thrill from it because I don't know who I'm going to be talking to, and I don't know what's coming up next. Well, this is really great. I, could you talk about when you create these books? I mean, this. How, how do you gather? How do you record these with a tape recorder? Or I, my background's as a journalist. Mm-hmm. Um, I take careful notes of the dialogues that m- mean a lot to me. You know, once I when I have a really good dialogue, it's like I feel afterwards like I've had ten cups of coffee. I'm just so wired that I, I, ca- I think about everything that's been said and all these thoughts are jostling and jousting in my mind to uh, give further articulation expression. So one way I do that is to write not only about what we talked about in a literal way, but react further to those thoughts. Um, and then to try to bring that to the written page, you know, I found that if I just transcribe a dialogue and try to compose it that way and make it a literal transcription, it doesn't work. I mean, Plato himself, when he, he wrote about Pl- Socrates' dialogues, it's not like he did a literal transcription. It filtered through his mind. He was a dramatist and poet of the life of reason. So it went through his intriguing noggin and, and came out in a somewhat different way, but in a way like an artist who does an impressionistic painting. It can do more justice to reality than less by having that filtering process. And when you do this, could you talk a little bit about your, your process as a writer when you like put together your latest book, Socrates in Love? This is a, it's a wonderful book. I really enjoyed it. And could you talk a little bit about the process of assembling these different parts? Do you know what you're going to do, how you're going to divide up the book in the beginning? Well, that certainly can help. You know, structure is such an important part of the writing enterprise. And if you do have the structure down, um, you're ideally well on your way to composing a book. This sort of did lend itself to a pretty natural structure. I took the five original forms of love as practiced by the Greeks of antiquity, and so I centered the dialogues. In fact, I explored these these types of love uh, in modern context by asking questions about romantic love, love of country, love of family, uh, unconditional love, because I thought that maybe this is in a time of unbridled hatred, at a time when there seems to be so much intolerance and demonization, it might be interesting to take the f- Greek approach to love, where it's a functional approach, where there's not just one word love, but there's types of love, and and see if maybe that's the a better way or a more useful way of loving in a world that seems to be heading towards some sort of precipice.
It reminded me, the way the book was organized, it reminded me like a, a natural history of love, where you went out and identified the different species in, in the mm -hmm. subfauna. The only difference is that I take this natural history and I hold real-life, real-time dialogues here and now. So it's not just a historical regurgitation, but that we're taking and, and those types of love, family love, and we're asking, like in, a, in an excerpt of Dallas, Texas, we explored what is family love or what is love of your child um, to, to see what type of responses people would have today. Maybe in my own meditations that inters, uh, are interspersed throughout the book, we may, uh, I may then sort of draw parallels and juxtapositions between the ways of loving today and those of ancient Athens. But the idea, again, is to see um, if we're loving as well as we can or if there are better ways. So I had this dialogue in Texas, and they talked about, well, loving, l loving your child is to love, is to maybe judge sometimes, but it's also to never give up on that person, no matter what they've done wrong. And, you know, this is an excerpt of Texas where I thought everybody would have a pretty much cookie-cutter response to things. But they, they went very deep. Uh, they talked about if you were the mother of Timothy McVeigh, would you still love no matter what? And I thought that was really fascinating because yeah. that's uh, that's a uh, something that that I often think about when we see these kind of sensational crimes and mm -hmm. talk about you know the horror of the victims. It, it just seems to me to would be dwarfed by the horror of the people who who knew them or mm -hmm. or the the confused feelings of those people. Well, again, there's been people who uh, have done some heinous things. Um, I certainly have done things in my life that I'm not proud of, but my parents would never give up on me, and they might be disappointed in me. Of course, they've done things that have disappointed me as well. Um, but the idea is, um, if you love a child, if you have, uh, what does that involve? It involves commitment. It may involve judgment, but it also involves forgiveness. It involves a sense that you always are going to be there, maybe always try to channel them down healthier directions if they do go astray, those types of things. And if they do something, you know, on that stratosphere of, uh, of monstrosity, that act that was committed by Timothy McVeigh, even then his mother said, look, I understand why others look at my son as a monster, but I never could. He's my son. I love him. Um, and she begged that they spare his life, even though she understood why others would not want them to. But again, that's, that's you know, parent love. This, one of the things I did really like was your, your five divisions of love. You have eros, erotic love, storge. Storge. Storge, family love, which we've just been talking about, philia, friendship love, xenia, stranger love, which is, that's really interesting, that yes. great concept, and agape, unconditional love. Uh, let's talk a little bit about erotic love because that's what pops up to mind. It's Valentine's mm -hmm. Day. Uh, what kind of discussions did you have? And, and, and I, I guess one thing I, I really liked, a character who pops up a few times in this book, Bertrand Russell. Mm -hmm. Well, can I say one thing first? Um, sure. The, uh, for me, you know, I met my wife Cecilia to Socrates Cafe. She was, it, it was the second one I ever held, and she was the only one who came. So <laughs> I had just uh, ended a long-term relationship or was ending one. I was looking... I was not looking for love, wrong places, right places. I wasn't looking for it, and I fell in love with her, and almost immediately, I think, uh, we had the, our very first dialogue was on the question, "What is love?" 
but there was this passion and eroticism and lots of things. But what I also, f I, I came to agree with Plato's symposium when Diotima says, you know, at first there's, there's hierarchies of eros. There's the vulgar eros and then there's the heavenly form. And so you use that window of opportunity when you're erotically, passionately in love with somebody as the basis or the springboard for wanting to reveal other types of beauty, to discover other types of beauty. So I know that from that love and that passion came this incredible artistic outburst, came this incredible socially aesthetic outburst where I wanted to start these Socrates Cafe groups um, and many venues. I, had, I don't think I would have been doing these things with the passion and intensity if I had not met Cecilia and if we hadn't had that window of opportunity, as Diotima would, would say, to um, take that passion, base, what have you, but use that as the sort of springboard for other types of exploration. Because I think sex itself is a form of inquiry. What pleases me? What pleases you? Um, what does it do? Does it transform me in some way? Does it get old after a while? Um, is this all there is to it? Or is this an uh, avenue into other creative outlets? Uh, fascinating. I, could you talk a little bit about uh, Arete? The love Ar Arete? Arete. Um, uh, that... Well, let me say it this way. Six Questions of Socrates, my previous book, and uh, the second book in the trilogy, was all about the Greek pursuit of human excellence, of becoming an excellent all-arounder, of, of, of realizing further what they call arete. To them, arete is all about you know, learning, discovering, exploring, maybe classifying things, dividing things into various areas of knowledge, but with the idea of putting things back together again and knowing more about the wholeness and the oneness of life. And so what you're supposed to do during your mortal moment is discover those talents, those gifts that you have that contribute to that all-around excellence of your society, that you develop those talents of yourself, whether it's being a playwright like Sophocles or whether it's being an inquirer into the physical universe or somebody who delves into the human cosmos like Socrates, the idea is... Or to, yourself. Well, I don't... I, I think the jury's still out. But I think that um, the whole idea is to recognize that there are no neat divides between uh, the outer cosmos, the inner cosmos, between any area of knowledge, whether it's the hardest of the hard sciences and artistic inquiry, that they're all intersticed. And so the Greeks recognized that. It's not that the boundary, boundaries were blurred. It's that they saw things holistically, more like a child would. And um, so in, I try to show in my books that you can delve thoughtfully using a sort of kindred version of the scientific method. I think the so Socratic method is a scientific method just used for different ends. Um, to become more, but with the end of not just knowing things for the sake of it, not like Faust, but to use knowledge, to use it in ways that elevate humanity, that don't just make you more knowledgeable, more excellent, but practice the Greek form of excellent, where you, which is imbued with the ethos that you cannot become all you can be unless you help your fellow members of society do the same. And that's what Arete is all about, is that developing those individual talents that help society itself become more talented, where you see the individual 
as a microcosm of society, but where you see the society itself as a type of individual. And this would lead us to this idea of uh, the passions. You talk about your passions, and could you talk about that you had a dialogue about passions that you record in this book? I had a dialogue about passion um, that took place on the 100th anniversary of the founding of Las Vegas. And I held that dialogue at a casino. In I mean, you there were... That's a wild it idea. It is wild. I have to tell you, there is a thriving Socrates Cafe that meets in a resort casino in the heart of Las Vegas. But if you really think about it, it's not any different than what Socrates did way back when. He held his dialogues in the Agora in the public marketplace at a time when citizens, where the Greek democracy was in decline, um, citizens were ultra-narcissistic, ultra-self-involved, very avaricious, um, hedonistic. So here he was surrounded by a sea of hedonism exploring the virtues at a time when society was anything but. So what better place in America, which is all about um, you know mindless, endless consumption, um, all about self-gratification, what better place to have a Socratic dialogue, what better epitomizes what we're up against than to have it in such a place? Well, could you talk a little bit about what came out of that dialogue? Well, what's interesting is that um, people started talking about whether passion is just something, is it, ne is it necessarily base? Is it something that we, uh, that is a healthy thing that society gives you outlets for venting those passions? Or is it a sign of societal decline? And there was this one really interesting character named Denny. In fact, while he was still playing the uh, slot machines while we were having the dialogue, and his, uh, his idea was, okay, you know, Look, he, he came from Omaha, Nebraska, and he said, look, I'm a salesman, and they, when I do well, they send me here to have a wild, frenzied weekend to do whatever I want to. Um, this helps me contribute to my country, this passion of mine to come to Vegas, because sales is the backbone of capitalist American society. So when I come here and I vent my wild side for a weekend, then I go back to my wife and my child and church and my sales and I am a more committed salesman than ever so I am making my country stronger so he says it's so important to recognize your base passions to have an opportunity to vent them because that ultimately allows you to then practice more the uh, Apollonian side you know the structured side of, 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 of living in the rest of your life you know by having that Dionysian frenzy from time to time Oh, that, that's a different uh, form of passion than I'm used to. I, I tend to think of passion of, as a kind of form of belief, a, a strength of belief. Well, you know, let's, let's skip over and go and travel to New Orleans, where I had a dialogue there also on eros and passions and, um, during Mardi Gras. In fact, it was the Mardi Gras just before Hurricane Katrina struck. And it was interesting because a lot of the people there had been children of the or of, of the 60s and they had talked about the fact that they were embarrassed by the way young people today compare sexual positions and, and things like they're comparing toothpaste brands 
And they said, gosh, I'm from the 60s, and that embarrassed me, that there was no, that there was no value system attached to that. This is Where, April? Yes, and okay. they talk about the fact that, look, Free love is not values-free. It's imbued with values of a sort where you feel like you're connecting more intimately uh, with your partner or partners, whereas today mm -hmm. it's just all about having sex just for that momentary, what they would call cheap thrill, and there's nothing beyond that, no con intimacy, mm -hmm. no connection to that other person, no desire to discover what their wants and needs are. It's just all about you. And they said, you know, that was the antithesis of what we wanted in the 60s. It was all about loving in a way where we felt like we all were engaged in this joint process of freeing one another from liberating shackles from the hypocritical practices of our parents who were closet philanderers, um, but really having a type of love that was experimental but very, very laden with values that they felt were liberating. Now, over time, they felt like, you know, what I really want is just a one partner in an equal relationship. But that they had to go through that process to, to realize, to come out on the other end of that and to realize that um, they just wanted to try to sow the seeds to create a society where men and women really saw one another as equals and could then have that passionate intimacy based on that. In a sense, the erotic version of the Socratic dialogues. In a Ex sense, and I, but exploring I have to through tell inquiry. You, I think I think that inquiry itself is erotic. I mean, I think that a Socrates cafe at its best is a love in. I mean, there 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 is a there. I mean, look at Plato's dialogue on the symposium. There are all these erotic asides among participants. It was very sexually charged, um, and what. I think is missing these days is that tendency to either dismiss that or to fail to recognize that that's there or to not want to admit it. And I think, again, we miss out on something. What's wrong with recognizing that you, know, you connect with people and that there is... See, er erotic doesn't always have to mean that you're going to go out and have uh, you know, a, a romantic relationship or any intimacy of any sort of that nature with others, but it just means that there's a romance to inquiry itself and that it might well make you a, a better lover. I hope it makes you fall more in love with the world, and part of that would be to fall in more in love with the one you're with. And, and once that happens, the next step is, of course, a story, a family love. And this is really fascinating. I have two children, <clears throat> and, and you, you, we talked about this earlier. You really will do anything for your children. You will. Um, I think that family love is, I, I mean, I'm a father now of an 18-month-old uh, precious little girl. I, the second she was born, it was like, I knew I would throw myself in front of a bullet in a train track or anything to protect this precious little life. Um, you know, to the Greeks, family love, just as with all these forms of love, is never all it can be unless you practice all the forms of love simultaneously. And, right, because Storhe seems to, to wash over in, into agape. Well, it does, but it also washes over, believe it or not, into philia, into eros, even into xenia, love of strangers. If you only want the best things for your child, if you want her to have a great education, a nice, safe roof over her head, great health care, but you don't really care 
if people you may never meet on the other side of the globe um, can't have those things for their own children. In fact, that you may be contributing to a world that makes it less likely that they will have those things for their children. Then the Greeks would argue then family love can't be all it can be because you would ideally want for others, whether you know them or not, to who likely have similar hopes, fears, aspirations for their children, um, then you are lessening love. You're lessening your love for your own child if you don't care to help make the world a place where others can love and protect their children and give them the best things in life, too. As you conducted the, these dialogues uh, around the world, and, and some of the places you went were, were really quite incredible, the, the Czech Republic, where you ended up talking about Columbine. And that was not a planned dialogue. Um, it was on National Holocaust Remembrance Day, and I had just gone as a tourist with my wife to um, Theresienstadt, the former Theresienstadt concentration camp. And I was aghast that a number of people in our tourist group were not only not listening to the guide, but whenever he would point out that this is where people were executed, that these were kids, who adolescents, who, from what I was told, went to one of the best private schools that money could buy, who were just cracking up. They were pretending to be hanged, pretending to be executed, and their teacher chaperones were just laughing along with them. And out of, I don't know, perplexity, exasperation, at the end of the tour, when the tour guide, who also seemed very out of sorts, needless to say, asked us if there were any final questions, I just sort of blurted out, what should we be learning from this? What, if anything, should we be teaching others from what we saw? And I left it at that. I mean, the thought behind that was, gosh, if you can go to this great school, become very learned, and yet have absolutely no values, I mean, no sense of humanity or concern at all, then what does that say? Because, you know, Nazi Germany was the same. These were people who were formerly very well educated, and yet there didn't seem to be a value system to go with that. What does that say? Does it mean that we're doomed to continue repeating these atrocities against our fellow man. And so we stopped. I mean, most the, the teachers and the kids, they quickly sped off. They didn't want to have anything to do with me or that question. But a number of people stayed. And at first they seemed uncomfortable, but after a while they wanted to probe this question with me. This idea that uh, you know, we talk about Holocaust uh, never again. They talked about the fact that, well, gosh, seems like there's holocausts of many different sort or, or acts of genocide that are still taking place that we just uh, can turn a blind eye to, um, that we need to understand what happened here and to understand what's going on here and now today in many parts of the world where uh, you know, pe millions of people in certain countries are dying of preventable illnesses. Um, what 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 should we call that? What should we label that? Uh, when people, tens of millions of people die of AIDS in other countries just because they don't receive the proper medicine, you know, this, what should we call that? Um, and what what did your your the people in your group say? I mean, well, I th I think that you know we did we did we come up with a final answer to anything? No, I think though that we thought that we should go back to our respective homes 
and tell people what we saw, um, not in a preachy, proselytizing sort of way, um, but with this sense that if we're going to become more humane, um, then we should try to model that in some way. If, if we see somebody hurting, we should reach out. If we just can sort of learn how to listen to other people's stories, um, you know, not this um, don't do as I do, do as I say type of thing. Quit, quit being hypocrites about things. Um, but that the, if, if, you know, those teachers acted just like the kids, they were all sort of this band of people who were just cracking up over things, but that we, we need to learn to quit trying to model for others in a proselytizing sort of way and just try to practice a humane way of being where we recognize people who are suffering, you know, there before the grace of God go I, and quit trying to put ourselves over other people. We've been speaking with Christopher Phillips. His newest book is Socrates in Love, Philosophy for a Diehard Romantic. Thank you for joining me, Christopher. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. <laughs>